When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello! Welcome to the Scandal episode of Slate Money, your guide to the business and finance news of the week. I am Felix Salmon of Axios. I'm here with Emily Peck, also of Axios. Hello. I'm here with Elizabeth Spires. Hello. And we are here to talk German scandal. We have the one and only Dan McCram. Welcome, Dan. Thank you. Hello. Dan, you are the crack investigative journalist at the Financial Times. You have an investigation coming out very soon, which we are all desperate to find out what it is, but we can't quite let go of the last one, which was Wirecard, which was this huge thing. It became a book, which you've written. What's the name of the book? Money Men. It became a movie that you star in. What's the name of the movie? Scandal! Bringing down Wirecard. (laughs) It's all fun. So we're going to talk about all of that and conspiracy walls and red string. We are going to talk about 10-year-old artists. We are, of course, going to talk about the UK and the way it is melting down because you are right there in the UK. It's all coming up on Slate Money. So, Dan, you are in the UK this week. You are bundled up in layers of clothes because you're not turning on your thermostat. From across the pond over here, it all looks... Kind of catastrophic. Is it catastrophic? Are things going very, very badly over there? It does feel like we've had somewhat of an accident, which didn't need to happen. (laughs) On on a scale from like one to ten, how bad was this accident? It was pretty bad. I mean I mean I mean I'm gonna say it was sixty-five billion, right? Sixty-five billion is how bad it was. And it's also so bad because it was entirely unforced. You know, you're used to in the context of enormous central bank bailouts, there being some sort of proximate and slow-burning cause. And, you know, maybe there, were, there is a little bit about it. The UK hasn't been on a great track for a while. But to have the Chancellor of the Exchequer stand up and make a bunch of announcements, which basically send bond markets into a tailspin, that's quite unusual. And so we've had people telling the Financial Times this week that we were pretty close to in pension funds failing because they couldn't meet margin calls. And that is kind of crazy. So, and I say this uh, not just yeah. as someone who is suddenly looking at their mortgage bill going up by a quarter each month. So, yeah, okay. So the first thing, there are so many that different things going on here, which I think Americans don't entirely understand, and it's worth unpacking. The news here is that the Charles of the Exchequer is this wonderfully old-fashioned name by which the Brits refer to their finance minister. There's a new chancellor. His name is Kwasi Kwarteng. He's been the finance minister for what, like a few days? About 10 minutes. Yeah. And we also obviously have this new prime minister, Liz Truss. And the two of them, basically the first big thing they did was come out with this weird mini budget in the where the time when you're not actually meant to be conducting much fiscal policy, but they did this emergency thing. And 
announced they were going to have a massive tax cut and massively increase government borrowing at a point when inflation was running very hot already. And they were going to do all of this fiscal stimulus, which seemed like a really bad idea. Oh, and Kwasi Kwarteng fired the chief civil servants at the Treasury, basically saying, this is, I've got this chap, so I don't want to listen to any experts. And the financial markets basically said, we have no grown-ups in the room here. It's all going, this is terrible. And as we all saw, the pounds crashed, the UK bond market crashed. And then the other thing that we have to remember, which you just mentioned, is that UK mortgages are very, very different from US mortgages. And are you one of the people who has a mortgage that just it resets every month according to whatever interest rates happen to be that month? Not quite. So most people are now in the system where you agree your mortgage rate for two to five years in advance. So you lock it in. So I had a three-year fix, which is just about to come off. And I really should have got this sorted before the announcement. <laughs> and so my interest rate is just about to go from 1.6% to about 4% Ugh. overnight. I have a friend in the UK who's been going through this process of remortgaging, which you have to do every few years because they're very short-term fixed rates. And he basically agreed a rate. It went up basically two points from what he agreed. It went up one point in one day. In like literally over the course of 24 hours, they're like, oh, we're going to increase it another point because everything is so chaotic. And there was one point earlier in the week where the mortgage companies just stopped giving out new mortgages at all because they're like, we have no idea what's going on. Yeah, so all the banks have been pulling their mortgage offers and the mortgage offers that you get are only good for 24 hours, which is kind of wild. Normally, this is a process which takes weeks. There's a long application. And so... We're at a kind of moment where no one is quite sure what is happening, but it all seems quite bad. And the reason why it's sort of causing a lot of people to be infuriated and surprised is because we were already in the middle of this cost of living crisis. You know, gas prices are a really big deal in Europe because of the war in Ukraine. And everyone expected the government to announce something to help everyone. And they did do that. They announced a very large package. But they sort of larded on top of it a whole bunch of tax cuts, particularly tax cuts for the very rich, which were totally unfunded. And the government went overnight from having, I forget the exact numbers, but I think it added about £70 billion to the amount of government debt that was going to have to be issued this year. And the bond market, all of a sudden, just wasn't ready to buy that. And so what the government has done is in attempting to address one cost of living crisis, has created a bigger one, potentially by putting up the cost of everybody's debt service. Right, because one of the things we need to know about the UK is that it has an even higher homeownership rate than the US. Like Homeownership is a very, very normal thing. Most people own their own homes in the UK, so the mortgage thing is, is very broad. And we had, before this mini-budget, we had uh, an announcement from the government that they would basically cap energy bills. So that part of the cost of living crisis, if like, you know, your, your energy bill is going up massively this winter, that had already been addressed. And then this new announcement managed to just make matters worse. Basically, all of the money that people are saving on energy bills, they're now losing in higher mortgage rates. And I think what this shows is how dangerous it is when... Policy seems to come out of nowhere. 
So normally when you get a new government attempting to do something radical, like, hey, we're going to have a whole load of tax cuts, there's sort of, you have elections before that, you have a big discussion of it, there's a manifesto. And then we had this strange thing over the summer where Boris Johnson was booted out by his own party. And this tiny electorate, the UK Conservative Party, voted for Liz Truss. And we kind of knew that she was, in some sense, a bit of a far-right headbanger. She has espoused some very pro-market views. Her and Kwasi Karteng wrote a book all about things that Britain needed to do and how unproductive and lazy UK workers were. So there were inklings that they sort of had this very polite, unorthodox approach to economics. And so it kind of, the scale and the scope of their ambition, and they sort of untethered to, you know, practical concerns about bond market vigilantes, how are we going to pay for it, you know, the normal bread and butter of politics, that has kind of come out of the blue and has brought to head sort of a whole bunch of lingering interlocking problems which the UK is currently facing. I was wondering, because I've read so many different analysis pieces some of which say this is Liz Truss and Quasi Quatain's, this is the trouble they cause. Then other people say, no, in UK's problems all started in the pandemic. And then someone else, maybe Felix, honestly, said, no, this is because of Brexit. So I'm like, and then, you know, someone was, oh, no, it's the queen died. So the empire is, is dead. And I'm like, oh, OK, but but I am trying to figure out sort of how to read this. Like if Liz Truss hadn't come into power and announced this new policy, would the UK just be kind of like, oh, you know, have high inflation, but dealing with it? Or is this kind of thing inevitable at some point the pound would fall da 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 right know? so we had a really good example we had a terrible prime minister in Boris Johnson and he had a series of finance ministers all of whom were more or less you know useless but especially what we saw over the summer was Boris Johnson just going on holiday and doing nothing and his finance ministers doing nothing and the economy just kind of teetering along in a kind of relatively crappy way with high inflation, but like no crisis. And if Liz Truss and Kwasi Kwarteng had come along and done absolutely nothing, we would still have no crisis. The reason I say that it all dates back to Brexit is that Brexit broke a lot of things in the UK, but mostly what it did was it broke this centuries-long compact where the civil service and the sort of technocrats, a lot of whom, you know, were educated at expensive Scottish private public schools, you know, they would like quietly run the country in a, re in a more or less professional way, no matter who was in power. All of those people lived in London, they were Remainers, and they were really sidelined, especially now with Trust, but even before that with Johnson. And now those sort of grown-ups in the room aren't there anymore. And that's why the markets fell out of bed, because the markets just didn't believe that anyone was capable of, of reining in these, these wild Brexiteers. In the event, it turned out that there's one last bastion of like technocratic competence in the UK, which is the Bank of England. And they came out with £65 billion worth trying to stabilize the bond market, which actually did work, at least at the long end of the curve. So like, 
thank God for the Bank of England at least, but one of the reasons that the markets reacted so badly to this was precisely that they didn't even really trust that the Bank of England was going to be able to do anything because trust has been very negative towards the central bank as well. I mean, I hear what you're saying about the lack of expertise, but I think there's also a similar but slightly deeper issue in that there's a question of sort of basic truths. And so what we still are yet to reckon with is sort of one of the lies at the heart of Brexit, which is that sort of Brexit was this political project to separate us from the European Union. And that's fine. There were various political reasons to do it. But in order to sort of get on board with it, there is this big central lie about it all, which is that it's also a good thing economically to cut yourself off from one of your largest trading partners, insert lots of friction into otherwise straightforward economic relationships. And the Conservative Party and the government, because it's been committed to the Brexit project, hasn't really been able to look some of those sort of economic realities in the face. And I think that's how you kind of get to the point where you say, expertise doesn't matter, the rules don't matter, you don't need to worry about the market, sort of everything will be fine, because you have sort of developed this sort of political or governing culture where you're you're sort of decrying the experts, decrying the grown-ups. And that has sort of brought us to the point where you can go, oh, right, we'll just have massive tax cuts. We won't worry about funding them. And then it all goes horribly wrong. Is there a consensus now that Brexit was economically damaging? I mean, I think everybody on this podcast thinks it was, but generally where you are, are people on the same page about that? Oh, and it, Within the FT, there, there was never any doubt about that. But yeah, I mean, if you look at the opinion polls, <laughs> how are they looking? Certainly the Tory party is looking very unpopular right now, but does that also bespeak a similar disillusion with Brexit? I think it's more that there are a lot of people disillusioned with Brexit, but neither party wants to confront that central problem of Brexit, that it wasn't brilliant economically. Conservative party can't because it's entirely wedded to Brexit. And the Labour party they are 17 points ahead in the polls. They are on course to win the next election. They have plenty of other things they would rather talk about than why risk getting drawn back into the Brexit question. So they are sort of quietly going along with it, as it were, because they're ahead. They don't need to rock the boat. And also because there's no realistic way of reversing it in the foreseeable future. So like, why even bring it up? Yeah, exactly. There are a whole series of other things that are big priorities, like the NHS, the fact that criminal barristers are on strike in the UK at the moment. There's a whole bunch of problems of which trying to confront an intractable and deep-seated political question, well, we'll just leave that to one side. Does, the, does what happened in the UK this past week tell us anything about what's happening in the global economy or from my nationalistic perspective in the U.S.? Does it signal that in the U.S. there's going to be more friction between fiscal policy and monetary policy? Like for years, fiscal, like Donald Trump put through massive tax cuts. Um, we passed huge stimulus. Monetary policy kind of fell in line with that. It was fine. But as we're in this like new economy now, is there going to be more friction between the two? Like, are the aims going to start diverging in ways that are hard to maybe even see at this point? Emily, you should read your colleague Matt Phillips on this. He wrote a whole thing about fiscal dominance and how, yeah, it's, it's a really good question. We've certainly seen 
in the UK, all of the, you know, the market's reacting much more to fiscal than to the central bank. You know, there's no risk of that happening under the Biden administration. But like, yeah, come some hypothetical future Republican president, who knows? Yeah, I just keep thinking like the response to the pandemic was so in the US and everywhere was so like, spend money, spend money, like we'll stay out of trouble if we can just, you know, spend a bunch of money and not repeat the mistakes of the Great Recession. Now we're dealing with all this inflation, the consequences of that. You you wonder like what the next crisis, no one's going to want to spend a dime. (laughs) What is going to happen? It's, it's an interesting thing to think about, but I guess we have to just get through all these crises first. And, you know, Dan has to heat his house and stuff. So (laughs) (laughs) I think there's a lot of comparison this week between the UK and the US in that the US is in the privileged position because it has the dollar which mm. everybody still wants. I mean, very clearly, if you take a look at um, financial markets, I mean, the dollar is incredibly strong against pretty much every other currency at the moment. So I don't think you can necessarily draw that same lesson for the US from the UK. But it's more the the broader picture is we're kind of heading into uncharted territory because we've got inflation back again. And inflation, just to be clear, is is really bad in the UK. You've got, you have double-digit inflation in the UK. Yeah, we have double-digit inflation. And the economy is so strange. Like, growth is very slow, but unemployment is at record lows. So everybody who wants a job basically sort of has a job at the moment. But prices are going up very quickly. And we've got this sort of big gas-related sort of recession coming towards us. So it's quite hard to wrap your head around how this is going to play out. I mean, well, it's not that hard for me to understand. It's quite natural that if you take an entire continent's worth of workers and then suddenly say you're not allowed to work in the UK anymore, that that's going to create a much tighter labor market in the UK, which is going to be inflationary. Um, How you fix that problem, honestly, is like don't do Brexit in the first place. Well, thanks. That's uh, we'll, we'll we'll take that under consideration. Uh, oh, I'm glad Very we solved helpful. it. Yeah, brilliant. <laughs> He's been saying this the whole time. <laughs> <laughs> Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day. That's three percent on your favorite products at Apple, two percent on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and. on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Dan, we need to change the subject a bit and talk about your new career as a movie star. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about the movie wherein you are the starring character. So Scandal, Bringing Down Wirecard, is a documentary about an investigation that me and my colleagues did at the Financial Times, which started out quite normal. We're looking at this funny little German company, and maybe it's a little bit fraudy. 
And the deeper we start to dig, the more bizarre things become. And so we start to realize there's hackers involved. There's private detectives following people around. And then it turns out one of the bad guys is friends with Libyan militias. And he's hanging out with Russian spies. And the whole thing starts to get really quite exciting. And we publish a bunch of stories. And then suddenly, me and my colleague at the Financial Times, Stefania Palmer, well, we're under investigation by the German authorities, rather than the company we're trying to expose. It all goes a bit crazy for a while. And this, you, you wrote it all up in a book, which may or may not appear in the US at some point. But if we have access to Amazon.co.uk, what's the name of the book? Money Men, a hot startup, a billion dollar fraud, a fight for the truth. There you go. We love subtitles here at Slate Money. It's a wild story, but one of the super interesting things, at least to those of us in the US who haven't read the book, but who have seen the movie, this is two stories. It's like One story is the story of a big fraud in Germany. And it's a fascinating story about the German corporate culture and how... There's much less skepticism in Germany and in the German press about companies and it's that the German press is much less antagonistic and you kind of need the FD to come in and provide that service. And this, the Wirecard story is fascinating, but it's probably even more than the Wirecard story. It's an investigative journalism story and it's about you and Paul Murphy and the FT and Lionel Barber, the editor, and... That is something that I think in the annals of similar stories that we've been covering in the US, whether it's like Theranos or Uber or that story of the nuts and bolts of doing the journalism, we haven't seen it the same way. I mean, that's the great thing that the film is sort of telling this sort of universal story of, you know, journalists start digging and then they get into trouble and the, the people they're trying to dig into fight back. And it's kind of a bit like Theranos but on steroids. So you have the chief executive strutting around in the black turtleneck, pretending he's some sort of visionary like Steve Jobs from Apple. And it's sort of about how hard it is to change people's minds when there's money at stake. So we sort of, we go off and do these investigations where we go and knock on doors, you know, find out what's really going on. And there's this incredible moment where we send my colleague Stefania to the Philippines to go and look into this business which is related to Wirecard. And we're not sure what we're going to find there because the cover story inside Wirecard is basically that it works with gangsters. It's a technology company that moves money around. It does sort of payment processing. And so what we've thought for a long time is maybe it's doing a lot of money laundering for some fairly nasty people. And we send Stefania with a photographer and a fixer. We don't want her going alone. And give her this address of a payments company to go and find. And they get there and it's a villa. And when she knocks on the door... It opens into this courtyard and the first thing she sees is two men with a poodle on a table and they're giving it a haircut. And there's no sign of any payments processing going on whatsoever. And you're like, at that moment, you're like, this is it. Actually, it's not a whole gangster enterprise. It's a whole giant fake. But what becomes crazy is we think, well, clearly that's the smoking gun. But when we go back and present it, you know, for all these sorts of different reasons, we can't seem to convince the rest of the world, even when we're publishing these stories in the FT, that this is the truth about the company. Yeah, that was remarkable to me. I think I read, is this right? You wrote like 96 stories about Wirecard. Is that an <laughs> accurate count? I've got a feeling that might have been Paul Murphy exaggerating slightly <laughs> in uh, one interview. But we did, I mean, I easily wrote 30 stories about the company. 
And I, I did get your sense of frustration coming through and I could relate not as a reporter who's, you know, exposed a giant fraudulent company, but just as a reporter, you're like, this time we have to write it so that people understand like this. <laughs> how are we going to get the people to understand? Like that must've been really frustrating. And I guess the question is, how did you get the people to ultimately understand? Was it EY swooping in at the end? My take here and my, my lesson from the movie is that ultimately the thing that brought down Wirecard was that Wirecard itself came out and said, oh, you remember that $1.6 billion we were talking about? Turns out to not exist. But you needed to hear that from the horse's mouth. No matter how many times it came from the FT, the share price defied gravity. It was only when Wirecard itself came out and said that the company finally collapsed. Yeah, also the really insane thing to me is that the regulators, instead of looking into Wirecard, started investigating you guys. And in the short sellers, was that surprising to you at all? I mean, it drove us mad at the time because you would think, hang on, like <laughs> we're, we're quite a well-known newspaper. <laughs> you don't think like the editor has just given the pages over to this rogue reporter to uh, write whatever he likes. There's ways we go about doing these things. But I think one of the big lessons from the whole thing is like who gets the benefit of the doubt, particularly when it's something to do with business and finance and it's complicated. So we wrote a story in October 2019, which essentially said the company is committing fraud. This is how they're doing it. Here are all the companies they're using. Here's all the fake clients. And if you don't believe us, we're going to publish all the underlying documents so you can see for yourself. And I thought that was pretty clearly, hey, there are crimes going on here. And it then took Wirecard another eight months to collapse because it got to investigate itself. You know, it's a company. These guys are wearing suits. They're apparently very respectable. You know, we can't just bust in there and interview them or arrest them. So it was allowed to hire another accounting firm to come in to basically delay, delay, delay. And it was um, only once it had finally run out of road that it was sort of forced to come clean. Yeah, you usually have a, a pattern with a story like that where the news outlet breaks the story and then the investigators swoop in, you know, the office, the DA, the prosecutor, whoever, they read the story and they're like, oh, we're going to investigate. Then there's like more coverage of the investigation and more news comes out. Yeah, but in this case, the German regulators were like, we'll just investigate the FT then. Like there was just this <laughs> denial. The big question which I have, there is this wonderful series of scenes, which I have to admit I did have a little bit of a giggle at where like you have this what are they called crazy wall conspiracy wall with a map and photos and red pieces of red string pieces of red <laughs> string and drawing connections did you really have that dan did you really have the crime board <laughs> i'm gonna come out and just guess that there weren't actually pieces of red string on the Aww. wall of the fd but the question i have is that is cinematic trope which bespeaks conspiracy and the question I have is, was this a conspiracy? Was there actually a conspiracy, not just within Wirecard, but between Wirecard and various other important parts of the German elite to prop up this company? So the best explanation for which we have evidence is complacency. There was just a deep-seated fundamental complacency at that elite level of German business and politics that this sort of thing just wouldn't happen here. But that's kind of dissatisfying, right? That's what you can see. You can see that time and again, the German regulator stepped in to protect Wirecard from critics, from speculators. And I think partly it did that just because it always had. And so it was defending its previous record. 
you know, partly the guys didn't really understand what was happening and didn't seem to have the imagination to do it. But as becomes clear in the film, you know, the main bad guy, this character called Jan Marslek, who's like the most charming teenage whiz kid who goes on to be like the tech guru behind the scenes, who's keeping all the plates spinning. He is hanging out with guys from Austrian intelligence, guys from Russian intelligence. He's friends with this guy who used to run Libyan intelligence. And so we never could clearly get proof. And the problem is he was allowed to skip the country after Wirecard collapsed. So he's sort of the mystery at the heart of it, which is he definitely had these friends who had an interest in him succeeding, probably Wirecard succeeding. And there are a lot of useful things that you can do moving money around the world if you have a a bank to do it for you. So you're sort of left with this. We know Wirecard was being useful to some pretty nasty people, but what we haven't been able to prove yet exactly is how and why that happened. And you're kind of left with the sort of incompetence theory of humanity as the simplest explanation, which is like Wirecard got so big and was so successful at being a fraud that it was so, you know, you doubt yourself. Surely it can have got this far. It's one of Germany's biggest companies. That can't be a fraud, right? Was it always a fraud? That's what I wasn't clear on. Like, it was there at some point that became a fraud and it started out in a legitimate way? Well, their their US subsidiary was real, right? They bought a business from Citigroup, which issues prepaid cards. And that's a real business. And it was really lucrative for Wirecard. In fact, suspiciously lucrative. We got a look inside and Wirecard was making 15, 20, 25% commission on transactions through some of these cards. And you ask the question, well, what sort of business pays 20, 25% commission? And prepaid cards are very useful for laundering money. If you can sort of load them up, hand them out to people, let them spend it without too many controls. So again, we're left with that sort of, because Wirecard collapsed and we're focused very much on the fraud part of it, those sort of lingering questions about the type of business that it was also doing. Is there anyone looking into this? I mean, you're still on the case, I imagine, Dan. Are regulators looking at these questions too? The US authorities were very much looking at it. And I think Ray Akivan was convicted for laundering money for Ease, the online cannabis company. And I'm reasonably sure that investigation came from them looking at Wirecard and the related, but sort of it's all the Wirecard guys are in sort of top guys are either escaped or going to jail in Germany. So you're sort of, I think they have other fish to fry now. What was the first red flag for you? You sort of saw something and said, this is definitely fraud. Please tell me it was an eight hour long conversation with John Hampton. (laughs) John has terrific stories. (laughs) Tell the listeners who John Hampton is, please. So John Hampton is this Australian hedge fund manager who has an eye for a great story. He spent a very long time fighting a battle with Bill Ackman, the famous American hedge fund manager over a company called Herbalife, which is how I got to know John. And we're going way back, 2014. He knew I was interested in companies that looked a bit off. And we're chatting one day and he just says to me, hey, Dan, would you be interested in some German gangsters? And I'm like, Great framing. Yeah, of <laughs> course. And it turns out it's this little company called Wirecard. It does something to do with payments and it's worth about 4 billion euros then. And I sort of think, okay, fine, I'll take a look at it. And it's one of those companies where you can't really work out what it does you know, you read its accounts and its annual report and its technology gobbledygook. And the real breakthrough comes when 
another hedge fund manager, an English guy called Leo Perry. He knocks on my door and he's done a whole load of work on Wirecard, it turns out. And Wirecard had bought a bunch of businesses all over Asia. And the really simple thing was, it was lying about what it had bought. It would say one thing to its investors in Germany, but if you went and pulled documents and filings and things like that in Asia, you'd be like, well, this is completely different. The numbers don't match. The business isn't what they said it was. And at that point, we didn't really know what the answer was, but what's the saying? There's never just one cockroach in the kitchen. Like if a company is lying about something, (laughs) like, well, they're probably lying about some other stuff as well. So how did the people who identified the fraud early, John Hampton and you know the early short sellers, how did they fare in the end? Did they all wind up getting stopped out as the share price just kept on going up and up? Or did they all like finally, when it went to zero, did they all make money? I mean, a bunch of them got stopped out because there was a period where Wirecard share price tripled. And that's quite painful if you're um, betting that it's going to drop. But Some of them were shorting this thing for years and years and years, losing money. And it was only on that very final day when Wirecard collapsed that they were able to make huge profits. Those two women, I love those women in the the movie. They were so cute. They drove to Pennsylvania to check out the prepaid card business. And they seem to have cashed in, right? Yeah. Oh, Fami is a total star of the film. I mean, she's amazing. She runs the only all-female, all-short hedge fund in the world. It's basically just sort of a kick-ass investigator. Hello, I'm Imi Harper. On the slow newscast from Tortoise, I tell the story of how a Hong Kong billionaire was silenced. I got bombs thrown into my house. I got people came here, ransacked my computer. And I, I got people threatening me. I got this and that, but I'm safe. And what it reveals about the freedoms Hong Kong no longer enjoys. Listen to Hong Kong's Rebel Billionaire on the Slow Newscast, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. We should talk about another thing that's massively overvalued, though, and that is paintings by 10-year-olds. I saw this. Yeah. Dan, what is going on here? It's the person who understands, who tries to get to the bottom of things that don't seem to make any sense. What is going on and how do you make sense of it? So the art market is this wonderful example, right, of something is worth what someone will pay for it. And 
the way you convince people that things are valuable is you start selling them for large amounts of money. It sort of becomes self-reinforcing, right? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> so if you can generate newspaper stories that say, hey, we sold a bunch of paintings and they went for really big prices, then that convinces more people that, oh, well, maybe we should buy some of these because they're worth loads of money, right? Emily, who is this artist and how much is his art selling for? So we're talking today about Andres Valencia. He's 10 years old. And apparently his paintings have sold for more than $125,000, according to the New York Times article. I read about this 10-year-old kid. Well, I mean, I, I actually followed the links. This isn't just a kind of according to the so-and-so. They, like, they really did. Like, there are public auctions in Hong Kong. Okay, where, where so he really these, did it. There, there are public <laughs> records of these paintings selling for six, or at least one of his paintings selling for six figures. And I have to just very quickly come out and say two things. Number one, He's 10 years old. So, like, don't hate on a 10-year-old kid, right? I mean, like, seriously. Like, he's 10. He does wonderful things for a 10-year-old. He's living his best life. You go, Andres. Number two, his paintings, quay paintings. Like, for a 10-year-old, I'm sure they're great. But as paintings, they are terrible. They are, like, they are very, very bad paintings. Oh, I hope he's not listening, Felix. <laughs> I love how you're like, so I'm not, like, don't I don't think we should him. hate on the 10-year-old, who, by the way, is doing terrible paintings. <laughs> I mean, who is letting this child out of the house? <laughs> I'm just if saying, it was like, my kid, I'd be very, very proud. These yeah, no, like, if, if it was my kid, I'd be proud that he was making, you know, paintings that, like, you know, this is a bit like a dog walking on its hind legs, right? You're very impressed that, like, it can do it. But by the standards of perambulation, like, there are other people who can do it much better. And the paintings are, you know, he's basically taken... You know, one part Picasso, one part George Kondo, one part Basquiat, and, you know, thrown it together into a, like an anti-blender, just made them really dumb and flat and uninteresting and large and dumb. And I think Dan actually, you know, put, put his finger on it, right? The only conceivable reason why anyone would want to, well, there are two reasons why want, people would want to buy this. One, because it has this, like tabloidy headline you know child prodigy thing and people get excited about child prodigies and other people are doing it and so they're just lemmings who want to follow but also i think it does bespeak something very important that's been going on in the art market for a few years which is really bad dumb art is exactly what is what sells these days. You see it across the NFT universe. It reminded me of a story in the late great spy magazine called My Kid Could Do That, where it was a stunt piece and they commissioned a bunch of paintings from, you know, seven-year-olds and then put it up against some contemporary painters and gave all of them incredibly pretentious artist statements and then brought in art critics to kind of come in and value and look at the work. And the critics couldn't distinguish the kid art from the real art. And they ended up putting it in a gallery show and selling it. <laughs> so, okay, so there is a long history of, you know, like Komar and Melamed, these wonderful Russian conceptualists, getting a bunch of elephants in Bali to paint paintings, you know, with their trunks and selling them for thousands of dollars and this kind of thing. And that conceptually is fine. But what I see here is absolutely not what you're talking about, which is, you know presenting something as as being sophisticated like you know mis-selling it the, there's a lot of transparency here you know that it's a kid painting the kind of kid art that kids like to paint and it's being sold as here's this kid painting his kid art right 
what is really happening is if you look at like Beeple, who's also terrible, selling for millions. If you look at Cause, who's also terrible, selling for millions. We are in an era of terrible art sales for millions. And I don't know why I get my emotions up about this, because on some level, the only real reaction you can have to this is to just laugh and say, oh, my God, you know, this is just, you know, sign of late stage capitalism. But I do think on some level that there are so many amazingly good, genuinely talented artists out there who are really struggling. And it is a little bit of a kick in the teeth to them to see like this kid selling his work for $100,000 when they can't sell it for 1000 That's kind of an issue in a lot of art forms, like in book publishing, the best-selling novelists aren't the best literary writers or in music, the best-selling artists aren't like the ones that are most respected for their craft. That's not really, I mean, it's unusual to have a 10-year-old. That's that's a good point, yeah. But typically, like what's commercial isn't always what's the best. I feel like maybe there's there's a sort of like a venture capital comparison in that everyone's been throwing money at early stage startups because they might be the next big thing. What you're buying with a 10-year-old's art is you're not buying what the art is now. You're looking at that kid and going, that kid is going to be the next big thing. So what yeah, I want I is the early art. It. So the when he's the next Picasso, yeah. Like, oh, well, I've got one of his early works here. I mean... Uh, I mean, that's the only sort of rational way I can sort of... Yeah, but I like, I don't believe it. I don't believe that it's speculative. There was talk in the New York Times article about it being speculative, and I don't believe it is. I don't believe that people are buying this on the basis that he's going to have a 50-year career and that his juvenilia is going to be worth millions in the future. I think it's, it's much more what Emily is talking about, which is just that dumb popular taste has overtaken the art world. Historically, the art world has always prided itself on connoisseurship. And now we're like, we're in a post-connoisseurship art world. Also, this kid has a good publicist. I feel like bad art has always sold well. I mean, was there a prior era where you feel like uh, people just had universally bitter taste? Yeah, like every single prior era. Like literally go back, (laughs) go, go back however many centuries that you want. You know, back when, you know, Rembrandt and Vermeer and Velasquez were the top-selling artists in the world. I think their art was pretty good. (laughs) Hindsight. (laughs) Let's have a numbers round. Uh, Emily, do you have a number? I have a number. You guys were talking about cricket before, so now I'm going to talk about baseball. My number is 61. So Yankees slugger Aaron Judge on Wednesday night, he hit his 61st home run of the season, tying with Roger Maris for the American League record, arguably the Major League Baseball record if you discount the steroid era. And I thought it was fun for slate money purposes because, okay, so it's his 61st home run. Roger Maris got that record in 1961. And that was 61 years ago. So there's all this like sports commentary. It's like like, numerologically. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But none of that means anything, but people really want it to mean something. You know what I mean? Like there's this urge to be like, well, 61, 61, and 61. So that adds up to this. So three plus three is six, (laughs) which is one thing. And also Aaron Judge is 99, which is divisible by three, which if you see what I mean, is fascinating. And you're like, do we have a conspiracy wall for this with red string? We we definitely need, I've got to get my red string out for this one. Exactly. Elizabeth, what's your number? My number is 13, and that's the uh, age of the youngest potential consumer that McKinsey surveyed when they were on a $17 million contract with Juul. 
And they denied for a long time that they were, you know, showing Juul how to market to teenagers and tweens. This is, this is the vaping company. Yes. Oh, my goodness. So they commissioned a whole study of teenagers to see, like, how they could appeal to them with vape? They were surveying teenagers about which flavors they liked the best. And so uh, apparently the, the winner was mint, but they were surveying 13-year-olds, which is astonishing. It's always mint. Oh, yeah, they need to do a survey for that? Like, <laughs> yeah, no, McK- McKinsey doesn't understand teens, so they need to survey them. Wow. My, my number is 200 billion, which is the number of euros that Germany has just come out and said that it's willing to spend to cap energy prices in Germany this winter, which is a lot of euros. It, like this is, um, this is what Liz Truss did before she did her mini budget. She was like, we're going to spend, what was it, 65 billion pounds or something capping energy prices in the UK. Um, now Germany is following suit. And again, that's the same problem, right? It's a massive fiscal stimulus at a point when the country is struggling with high inflation, but they kind of need to for, you know, to stop their citizenry from freezing to death. Dan, what's your number? So my number is £4.50, which um, to roughly convert that to dollars, I think is about $4.50. (laughs) (laughs) And that number comes to me because a friend of mine just had an electric boiler installed in his flat in London for the first time. And he, like us, has been trying to avoid turning it on for as long as possible. And he also has a smart meter which tells you exactly how much electricity you're using and what it costs as you do it. So yesterday he turned his new boiler on for one hour. Oh, God. And it cost him £4.50. And that was to heat one room of his house. Oh, my gosh. So that is why I am wearing three jumpers at the moment. And it's not even October yet. We are recording this in September. Yeah, no, and genuinely, like the sun is shining. It's about 16 degrees centigrade. I've, I mean, I've no idea what that is in strange American <laughs> temperatures. Uh, I don't know, 300? How, how does your scale work over there? <laughs> about Wait, five. If, you're spending, if you're spending 450, help me with math, because math is hard in my brain right now, but 450 an hour on electricity, how much does Her that room. work out to you? So, so that that's the heated sort of living room, living area. But so four fifty. So you might heat that for three or four hours a day. I mean, how how long do you want to uh, spend in your house? Four hours a day, and you have like three similar rooms. That works out. You're already over fifty bucks right there per day. day. Multiply that by you know thirty days. It's thousands. Holy cow! That is not sustainable. And that's electricity yeah. to heat. Okay, so you still need electricity to light your flat, as you call it. That uh, yes, your apartment. Too. You need. Uh, you, you do need electricity for other things like you oh know, eating and to yeah run your laptop so you can record podcasts on Slate Money. Yeah, we should reimburse you. you send us an invoice, Dan, for the amount of electricity <laughs> that yeah, you spent recording this podcast, and we'll get we'll get Slate to write you a check. Yeah, so times that by 80 million people, and that's how you get towards numbers like 200 billion euros spending on energy. And then you give rich people a tax cut. That is really crazy. I can't even believe that. (laughs) What is that? And no one believes energy with it, Emily. (laughs) My my favorite thing about Slate Money is... Emily's permanent incomprehension when it comes to rich people paying less taxes. She's like, I just don't get it. 
It's just so, it's like, these are the people with the most money. Why are we so obsessed with letting them keep more of it? I don't, what is happening? But it just seems particularly dumb in this case. Thank you, Dan, for coming on the show. Thank you, everyone, for listening and for writing in on Slate Money at Slate.com to push back on whatever crazy conspiracy theories we've had. If you have your own crazy wall with red string, please do not email us about it. The only person (laughs) who's allowed to do that is Dan McCram. He's a professional. Do not try this at home. Many thanks to Jessamyn Molly, who's been producing for a long time at Slate Money. We love you. Seaplane Armada is fantastic, so go to them for all of your podcast needs. And we will be back next week with even more Slate Money. Money.